Tommy Hatfield will be speaking at our 6 o'clock service tonight, and we look forward to hearing Tommy. And this lesson is our fourth in this series of studies on the subject, Questions from God. God promised Abraham a mighty nation and the gift of Canaan for their home. Exodus 1 to 7 contains a five-fold description of the numerical growth in the land of Egypt. A new Pharaoh's efforts to impede their growth only served to advance it. When the two Hebrew midwives refused to submit to his demand to kill their sons at birth, he charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river. Exodus 1.22 Divine providence secured a safe haven for Moses in the home of Pharaoh's daughter. At age 40, having killed an Egyptian in defense of a fellow Hebrew, he fled to Midian, married Sipporah, and served as a shepherd in Jethro's house, his father-in-law, for 40 years. With his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in mind, God responded to the suffering of Israel in Egyptian bondage by appearing to Moses in a burning bush and commissioning him to go to Egypt and liberate Israel from their enslavement. God responded to Moses' understandable hesitancy by assuring him of his presence and aid every step of the way. When Rose, Moses raised a legitimate point regarding Israel's refusing to believe him or accept his leadership, God asked Moses his first question. What is that in thine hand? Exodus 4, 2. When the rod in his hand was converted to a serpent and back into a rod, God said that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. Exodus 4, 5. God buttressed this great truth with a second sign and the promise of a third. Discernment of this momentous principle is crucial to one's understanding of the Bible. Revelation and confirmation are spiritual twins. They fit together like cold in winter. Find one and you have found the other. God's messenger and message need confirmation. This principle is set forth in the first five words of the Bible. In the beginning, God is revelation. And created is confirmation of the revelation. The remainder of Genesis 1 is a repetitious illustration of this divine maxim. 
God did not expect Israel to accept Moses' claim as their deliverer without proof. Nor did he of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as inspiration repeatedly declares, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt. Exodus 7, 5. The scepter in Pharaoh's hand was emblematic of his power and reign over Egypt. But the rod in the hand of Moses symbolized the sovereignty, omnipotence, and rule of God over all the earth. God's judgment upon Egypt was a declaration of His mighty name throughout all the earth. Exodus 9.16 Centuries later, the Philistines were yet in remembrance of God's mighty wonders in Egypt and referred to them in connection with what should be done with the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel 6, 1-6. The period of the judges was a continuous cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. Seven years of servitude under the tyrannical rule of Midian left Israel in national poverty hiding in mountains and caves in fear for their lives. Imploring the Lord for divine intervention, God sent a prophet to remind them of His grace and goodness in liberating them from Egyptian bondage, driving seven pagan nations out of Canaan and giving them the land only to witness their refusal to submit to His will. God appointed Gideon to free Israel from Midian's tyranny, and Gideon besought God for a sign of confirmation. And God granted his request. Gideon petitioned God for a second sign of verification with an added sentiment. Then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand as thou hast said. Judges 6, 37. And God conceded to his appeal. When Gideon entreated God for a third sign, he adopted the language of Abraham in his plea for Sodom. Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Judges 6.39 And God again yielded to his cry. On the night before the conflict, Gideon was facing a mighty Midianite army with only 300 men. Desiring for Gideon a knowing, verified faith, God gave him a fourth sign for which he had not asked and said, Afterward shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto this host. Judges 7 11. 
The battles and trials of life can only be fought and won with a confirmed, proving, proven, knowing faith. The hearts of the preponderance of humanity have never been attuned to the nature, thinking, will, and ways of God. Even the confirmation of revelation could not change this lamentable reality. The first generation from Egypt. Now let's think about what is going to be stated in describing what this generation saw with their own eyes. The first generation from Egypt witnessed the mighty confirmatory miracles of God upon Pharaoh and Egypt. That should have been more than enough. Physical salvation and the destruction of Pharaoh's army, sweetening of the waters of Marah, and bread raining from heaven. They beheld God's power in smoke and fire on trembling Sinai. The glory of God filling the tabernacle and the death of Nadab and Abihu. They observed fire burning in the camp of murmuring, a plague of death on those that lusted, and Miriam afflicted and healed of leprosy. And yet, the evil report of just ten men was sufficient to negate the influence of God's great wonders, summon tears of unbelief, and wishes for their own death in Egypt and the wilderness, the stoning of Joshua and Caleb, and the appointment of a leader to replace Moses with the intention of returning to Egypt. The spiritual mind cannot get around what has just been described. Jeroboam witnessed the validating signs of the unnamed prophet from Jeruda, Judah in the rending of the altar in Bethel, the paralysis and healing of his own arm, and the death of the prophet that rebuked him. But he returned not from his evil way. 1 Kings 13, 33. In order to counteract the evil and idolatrous influence of Ahab and Jezebel on Israel, God raised up Elijah and ratified him as a prophet of God in his announcement of a worldwide famine that would last for three and one half years. This prediction and its prompt commencement was followed by Elijah's daily visit from ravens to provide him with bread and meat, the prolonging of the widow's meal and oil, the raising of her son from the dead, and his great victory on Mount Carmel, only to perceive no basic change in Israel's love for idols. Elisha's succession as one of God's great prophets to Israel with his associated certifying wonders from God also failed in their attempt to sever Israel from their idols. They possess hearts 
like those their kindred in the days of Jeremiah who gazed affectionately upon their idols and said, There is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. Jeremiah 21, 24. Redemption and confirmation characterized the ministry of Christ. He warned that many shall come in my name and say, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Matthew 24, 5. Claiming to be a revelation from God void of miraculous verification nullifies the claim. Jesus performed his first miracle in Cana of Galilee when he converted water into a superior juice of the grape and his disciples believed on him. John 3.11 this initial supernatural wonder of Christ accents the truth concerning revelation, confirmation, and its purpose of producing faith. This is exactly what occurred in the disclosure of Moses as God's deliverer of Israel from Egypt. As Moses' spokesman Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. Aaron spoke the word of God. He confirmed the word of God just spoken with miraculous wonders. And the people believed. Exodus 4, 29 to 31. Jesus proved himself in every claim he made with a ceaseless display of supernatural power. The first consummated gospel sermon on Pentecost of Acts 2 presses this truth as Peter said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. How? By miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Acts 2, 23. It is a deplorable truth that only a diminutive residue of the masses that witnessed the mighty wonders of Christ profited from the divine intent that they might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 20, 31. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, John 12, verse 37. John chapter 6 depicts this tragic truth. In a multitude of thousands that followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased, verse 2, who then enjoyed a meal to the full that started with five barley loaves and two fish and concluded with leftovers that filled 12 baskets. The next day they found him in Capernaum. Jesus said, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Verse 26. They described the ensuing sermon on the true bread of life as a hard saying. Verse 60. And then went back and walked no more with him. Verse 66. Leaving only twelve disciples who said, We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 69. That very small remnant of disciples was further reduced by one. 
His name was Judas, and God called him a devil. Verse 70. Figuratively speaking, and back in Exodus 4, God looked at the rod of Moses and said, With this rod thou shalt work signs. Figuratively speaking, the rod of Moses became the rod of prophets. Christ, disciples, apostles, and many first century Christians resulting in a fully revealed and confirmed Bible. God's mind to man's mind, a consummated work of divine inspiration and man's only hope. As God continued to work with Moses in preparing his mind for the arduous task that lay before him, Moses made reference to his deficiency in speaking ability. Addressing this matter in his second question to Moses, God said, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, saith the Lord. Exodus 4.11. This question is an illustration of the active and permissive will of God. The making of man's mouth and eyes is an active creative power that is exclusively God's. The mouth and eyes are two parts of the physical form that stand for the whole of it, and only God could say, Let us make man. Genesis 1.26 The inability to speak, hear, or see are not actions of God. They are examples of the permissive will of God in allowing sin to have negative consequences which inherit in the nature of God. Sin destroyed the innocence of man and the perfection of the earth. God informed Adam of the thorns and the thistles, Genesis 3.18, with which he would have to contend for the whole of his life. All good things come from God, but the thorns and thistles of life point to the injurious power of sin and its impact upon both man and the earth. Viewing bodily defects as acts of God is kin to depicting God as the source of a prophet's deception, Ezekiel 14.9. Harmful statutes, Ezekiel 20.25. Judah and Jerusalem's delusions, Jeremiah 14. And the lies of religious error, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. All examples of the permissive, not the active, will of God. In spite of God's assurances of His aid all along the way, Moses finally voiced his absence of desire to do God's bidding. And it kindled the anger of the Lord. When Moses took that step and basically said, I just don't want to go to Egypt. Find somebody else. The essence of his response. There are two rememberings that surely spared Moses a display of God's anger against him. He 
that is God, remembered that Moses was flesh. Psalm 78, 39. And, and I love this four-worded phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, 2. This is a loving and tender scene in which God did not even pause to rebuke Moses for his unseemly demeanor. demeanor. In love, gentleness, and mercy, he asked Moses, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? Exodus 4.14, and then informed him that Aaron would assume the speaking role, and together they would accomplish his will concerning Pharaoh and Egypt. He further eliminated any remaining fears that Moses may have had about his mission by declaring, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Exodus 4.19. Now think carefully with me about the following statements. Pride is power's shadow. It is exceedingly rare to behold one without the other. An humble man's rise to power has often proved to be his ruin. Power can make fools out of the most perceptive of men. It transforms the countenance. It invalidates reason. It displaces thoughtful consideration of another man's view with a sneer of contempt. A man with power has no patience with any course of action that is inconsistent with his own thinking. In his own mind, in its own mind, power has no equals. It views itself as standing alone among men. It only associates with others possessing power for its own self-interest. It will trample upon anyone or anything that gets in the way of its own advancement. Power will not tolerate opposition or rebuke. It had rather experience a sword stained with its own blood than to wave the white flag of surrender. Preeminent power's greatest object of disdain is the sovereign power of God. Pharaoh wielded the scepter of supreme power over Egypt. He was a facsimile of power and pride. When Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh with God's reasonable demand to release Israel for a worship service in the wilderness, Pharaoh arrogantly replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey the voice? I know not the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5, 2. Pharaoh's unexcelled pride and haughty spirit is the basis of the two questions that God asked of him. As yet exalteth thou thyself against my people, that thou wilt not let them go? Exodus 9.17, And how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Exodus 10.3. 
Four chapters in Ezekiel 29 to 32 are devoted to God's ultimate judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and the answer to God's second question. Reading again, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? And the answer, Until my dying breath. Standing by the Red Sea with a backward look toward the approaching Egyptian army, the first generation from Egypt enunciated their first of many expressions of ingratitude and unbelief, desiring serfdom in Egypt over their freedom from bondage. God's fourth question to Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Exodus 14, 15. Implies that Moses was fervently entreating God for divine intervention to save them from Pharaoh and his army, though he had just stated that was what God was going to do. God's question and response to go forward affirms a great truth that there is a time to pray and a time to act. And there is no substitute for either requirement. One of God's requisites was the daily garnering of manna except on the Sabbath day. There would be no provisions of manna on the seventh day, necessitating a twofold gathering on the sixth day with no leftovers except on that day. There were some in Israel who violated both of these precepts, occasioning, God, occasioning God's fifth question to Moses that was meant for the offenders. How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? Exodus 16, 28. This sad and tragic tone of this question was a perpetual stanza of the song that was sung in the grieving hearts of the spiritual remnant over the lives of their brethren. These questions to Moses and Pharaoh give us great insights into the nature of man and the nature of God. A picture that we will revisit over and over again and our study on questions from God. You're present. You've never obeyed the gospel. We encourage you by faith, because this is what faith does, to repent of your sins, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and be baptized, because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you've done that and sinned in some way, or you need the prayers of the church, we want to encourage you to do what you need to do as we stand and sing this song.
should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Come sing this song and they will be led in our closing prayer. Brother Chester, thank you for that lesson. Thank you for your study and preparation on the questions that God has for man. I want to thank the visitors for coming. I'll be glad that you're here and we hope you can come back anytime you can. Well, uh, Conrad, will we have our 5 o'clock and 5.30? Okay. Uh, 5 o'clock uh, spent in uh, song service, and, and 5.30 the memory class, and then 6 o'clock uh, worship services. Number 550. We'll sing verses 1 and 3. Let us sing. When with the Savior we enter the glory land, won't it be wonderful there? Ended the troubles and cares of the story land, won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to to bear. 
Azal.